Hello, listeners. It is episode 52 of the SSR podcast. That means we have had a whole year of episodes. Assuming you're listening to this in real time, we'll be celebrating the official one-year anniversary of the pod next week on June 26th. But this is still a pretty big deal. We are winding down this first year, too, with a special Q&A episode dropping one week from today and then two weeks off from new episodes so I can regroup before jumping into year two. There's going to be some other fun stuff coming your way during that time. More to come. But in the meantime, we are going out on year one in style with a conversation about Sharon Creech's Newbery Medal winning book, Walk Two Moons. Walk Two Moons was published in 1994, and if sentimental Instagram messages from the SSR community are any indication, it has been meaningful to readers ever since. Our narrator is Sal, a teenager who has recently moved with her father from her family's farm to suburban Ohio. She misses the freedom of her old home, but even more than that, she misses her mother. It's unclear to us as readers for much of the book what's become of her mom, but Sal is on a journey to find out. She hops in the back of the car with her hilarious grandparents for a road trip to Lewiston, Idaho, the town to which Sal's mother went when she left the family. Along the trip, Sal shares stories from her town in Ohio with Graham and Gramps. The main subject is Phoebe Winterbottom, Sal's new best friend, and her family. As stories of Phoebe's mother unfold, we as readers begin to see parallels between the two families, and the anticipation to figure out the truth about Sal's mom only grows. There's so much in this book, so many mysteries, so many tragedies, so many fascinating relationships, and poignant touches of the kind of humor that naturally occurs in our lives, no matter how sad things get. The characters are endearing and the writing is beautiful, and I really can't say enough about Walk Two Moons as a whole. In this episode, we discuss identity and grief and family and gender roles and empathy and jealousy and so, so much more. Joining me to talk about all of it is Catherine Scrivener, who you may know from Bookstagram as Read with Cat. Catherine is a self-described book hoarder and one of the founders of the Bookly Club. As a cystic fibrosis patient herself, she's an advocate for others in the community and is a great resource if you want to learn more. Follow Catherine on Instagram at Catherine Scriv. If you haven't checked out Libro FM yet, let me remind you to do so. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers across the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. When I buy audiobooks from Libro.fm, I support my favorite Brooklyn indie, Books Are Magic. It's an amazing bookstore that also happens to be dog-friendly, so I'm a big fan. Thanks to each and every Patreon sponsor out there listening. Your monthly contributions make such a difference as I work to build this passion project of mine going into year two. If you want to learn more about getting involved with Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or visit www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. There are some great perks in it for you too. You can also support the show by sharing five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes, by spreading the word to your book-loving friends, and by following and tagging us on social media. We are at SSRpod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Make sure you're following on all platforms for some exciting updates coming your way very soon, and for news on season two, of course. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. 
If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasek, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. So Catherine and I have been Instagram friends for a while and we're having sort of like a morning, a Friday morning. It feels a little bit like a coffee date, even though neither of us are (laughs) drinking coffee, but it feels like I'm just having like Friday breakfast with an old friend, which is really fun. I agree. It's nice. It's nice to catch up this way. And Catherine, you are the guest for our like very last episode of what I guess I'm going to call season one of SSR. I'm now going on a two week break. So you're kind of like closing out the season. I'm going to do one quick Q&A episode that'll come out next week for those listening in real time. Um, But this is a special episode because we're kind of like putting a nice big bow on what's been a really special first year of the show. Well, now I'm even more honored to be on here. (laughs) Thank you. I'm honored to have you. And we are talking about Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech. I know that you and I both have so much to say about this book. We've been swapping Instagram messages for the last day or so, kind of like gauging our reactions, especially at the book's ending, which of course we're going to get into, kind of sharing the fact that we both have so many feelings about this and there are so many things that we could talk about in relation to it Um, but before we really dig into that because I have no idea where our conversation is going to go I'd love if you would share a little bit about why you chose this book and if you have any special memories of reading it when you were a kid sure so I remember it as being a book that I read and loved as a kid and so I actually heard I don't have my copy from when I was a kid I wish I did because I liked that cover so much better than this new one me too um but I purchased it a few months ago to reread. And then when you invited me to be on the podcast, I figured this would be the perfect opportunity to read it. And as I was reading it, I was like, I have zero recollection about anything in the story. Like it didn't even trigger any memories of any kind. It's like I read it, loved it, and then completely forgot about it. So honestly, I think I was hoping there would be maybe more like nostalgia involved in this rereading, but it was like I was reading it for the first time. (laughs) That's so interesting. And I think I think I've had that experience a few times for the show where I have picked up a book and I've been like, I know I love this. This book was so special to me. But then I realize I don't remember anything about the story. I don't really remember the characters. I more remember like the feeling of reading it and of loving it. And I I think I align with that somewhat on this book. I have very clear memories of getting it out from my school library. Like I remember this being one of the hotter books at the time. I think I was probably in fourth grade when I read it. And I remember like all the girls in school were reading it and it took a while to get it. You know, you had to like, Mm -hmm. I think there must have been a wait list at my elementary school library, I would assume. And I think I waited for it and waited for it. And I finally got to read it. And I remember the feeling of being really excited to have it. And I read it pretty quickly and I loved it. But like you, there weren't a lot of specific things that I remembered beyond the character. Like I remember loving the narrator, Sal. Mm-hmm. And I also remember that we had just recently done a Native American unit at school. And so I remember being very interested in the fact that there were some elements of Sal's Native American identity in this book. But I know that you and I wanted to touch on that because I would say identity is a big part of this book. Um, and Sal kind of like figuring out her identity and her grandparents' role in the book, I think, really anchors her in that. But you and I know feel the same way about the fact that like we want to be so transparent, as always on the show, about the fact <laughs> that we're two white women and... And we certainly can't do a close reading of this book from that perspective. That being said, I did find a really cool article online by Dr. Debbie Reese um, on a site called American Indians and Children's Literature. And she did a close reading of the book from a Native American perspective. And again, Catherine and I are certainly not (laughs) 
pretending or acting as though we can speak from this perspective. But I did want to share a few lines from this article because I think it's an important perspective um, and one that I want to make sure our listeners hear. So one note that Debbie Reese mentioned is that Sharon Creech, I suppose, has a few family members that are Native American, and so she was really excited to write about a Native American girl. Um, But Debbie Reese took some issue with the fact that, like, this is still a white woman writing a story about a little girl who comes from a culture that is very different than her own. Um, And so the final paragraph of this article goes like this. Creech incorporated a lot of information about identity too, but it doesn't work, at least for me. She's an outsider to Native culture trying to write a story as if she's an insider, but her story is based on outsiders' writings and outsiders' understandings, and it doesn't work. Yes, the book won a Newbery Medal, but if the committee had had analyzed the Native content, I'm not sure they would have made the same decision. For the committees and all the people who love the book, it seems to me that the Indian content doesn't really matter. It's simply a device or a decoration on a story about a young girl coming to terms with life and death. All of this Indian decoration is embraced by readers because readers too know little about the life and death of Native people. In the end, Creech's story unapologetically adds to the already too large body of stereotypical knowledge people carry around with them. And knowledge is in quotes. So I think for better or for worse, I, I agree with the piece of this paragraph that says that South Indian culture almost doesn't matter. It's like a device. And I think that reading it that way, reading it as the fact that South culture is a device reminds me that like this is not to be taken as like a textbook about what it means to be Native American. Um, It is an element of the book that Sharon Creech introduced. But I certainly as a kid did not look at it as a factual report on what it means to grow up as a Native American girl. Right. I agree. And that wasn't even how I read it this time around either. It was an aspect of it and a minor one at that, I think, which again, you could argue that there are problems with that. But I think you're right. It doesn't have to be read as a representation of any kind. That being said, certainly want to make sure that perspective is available Mm -hmm. as part of the podcast, an important part of the conversation, um, particularly in 2019, as we're working so hard as a community of book lovers to ensure that there's so much diversity in our reading and a diversity of voices. So wanted to make sure um, I shared that really interesting article, and I'll make sure to link it in the show notes as well for those who want to read more. The author does a really great job of exploring that. So worth mentioning, but let's get into all the wonderful things about this book, because it's pretty wonderful. As it I mentioned, is. it won the Newbery Award in 1995. It was published in 1994. What was it like for you getting back into Sal's world? So I think what's interesting is even though I didn't necessarily remember any bits of the story or even the characters, it very much mirrors the kind of books I like to read now as an adult. Mm. I tend to like books that have, you know, very memorable and relatable characters, books that are working through issues of some kind, whether that's trauma or identity or trying to figure out who you are and what your role is. And so I just found that really interesting as I was reading this, that, you know, it's like a middle grade version of the books I read now, like Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine and Beartown and The Great Alone, like hard books that are ultimately very kind of healing and hopeful and with some like redemption in them. That's such an interesting observation because I tend to like books like that as well. And I had a similar feeling where I was like, I understand sort of how my personal reading trajectory has developed given the fact that I loved this book as a kid like it makes perfect right. sense that I've grown into the kind of reader that I am now this is a fun book to read as an adult you know mm-hmm. as you said there are really heavy issues in it it does not feel like sort of an easy kids book to read there's a lot to think about a lot to sort through a lot of surprises at the end a lot of things that I was trying to figure out from page one that I like mm-hmm. couldn't quite figure out until the end. So I think that this book really has universal appeal. I would imagine that it's a really great read aloud for parents and for teachers. Um, I think a lot of 
kids read this for school. I did not, but um, I did see online that this is a book that's assigned in a lot of classrooms. So I can see why teachers would want to read it with their students. For those who have not read or thought about Walk Two Moons in a minute, a quick sort of summary of where we meet Sal, our main character. She's 13 when we meet her, and she's recently moved with her father from her beloved home in Bybanks, Kentucky, to Euclid, Ohio, which happens to be, I believe, where Sharon Creech was from or very close to where Sharon Creech was from. She's really not happy about this change. She loved living in Kentucky. She had this big farm and was very free and just like had this very idyllic life. And her mom is gone. We're sort of unclear at the very beginning of the book what Sharon Creech means when she says that Sal's mom is gone. She's gone to Idaho, a town called Lewiston, Idaho, and we're not really sure if she's coming back, if she's even alive, like what the terms of her going away were. But Sal has decided um, that she's going to go with her grandmother, Graham and Gramps, to go, quote-unquote, see her mother in Lewiston, Idaho, and she's decided that she has to get there before her mother's birthday because she thinks that if she gets there before her mother's birthday, maybe she will bring her back. Again, bring her back is sort of an interesting phrase when we don't exactly know what's become of her mother. So then this this sort of interesting framing device comes about because Sal's in the backseat of the car with her grandma and gramps who are in the front, and they're kind of this like hilarious couple. They are always getting into different kinds of trouble. Sal's dad is worried that something's gonna happen to them because they've like gotten into like just funny run-ins with the police over random things in the past, and they're sort of like wacky, very colorful characters. And um Sal decides to tell them the story and the story she tells them is kind of what she's been doing for the last couple of months while she's been in this new school. So there's like parallel stories going on. There's the story of Sal's road trip with her grandparents and then the story of what Sal's been doing in Ohio with her new friends, especially a girl named Phoebe Winterbottom. And I'm curious what you think of the use of this framing device. Like I I couldn't decide how I felt about it. I couldn't decide if I sort of wish that we got like the straight narrative of Sal in Euclid, Ohio, meeting all of her friends. I was sure if I would have gotten more out of the story that way. I mean, there are certainly things that we couldn't have come to understand without this road trip story, but I just couldn't decide if I felt like the framing device with the grandparents like added to my reading experience or if it was distracting. What did you think of it? I liked it. And I do tend to like stories that kind of go like weave the past with the present. Mm -hmm. And I think it was also interesting to watch kind of like Sal's story with her mother unfold as you're learning about what happens with Phoebe's mother Mm -hmm. um, and the different ways they interpret that and deal with it. I thought that was really interesting. So I think being able to go back and forth allowed you to see them in this parallel way that was made you able to compare them, I think, or at least think about the ways they were those two stories were kind of speaking to each other or influencing each other so I think I really liked it but that also just tends to be the type of story I gravitate toward I liked it too and I liked it more as the story went on because again I remembered very little of the plot and at the beginning I was like oh like I wonder why Sharon Creech chose to use this framing device but as we get further into the book and we start to understand as you said that the two stories are woven together um, and the lessons that we're learning about Sal's life and Sal's mother that are coming really from her interactions with Graham and Gramps really tie into what's happening in the flashbacks with Phoebe and Phoebe's family it sort of builds on itself throughout the book. And so it, it became very clear to me as I got further, I would say past the halfway point where I was like, oh, we almost we had to have this framing device for it to right. be this rich kind of story. <clears throat> and something that I found that was really interesting while I was researching before we jumped on today is that 
um, Sharon Creech had actually originally planned to write a book from Phoebe Winterbottom's perspective. And then she had thought about writing a book from Mary Lou's perspective. Um, Mary Lou is actually the narrator in another book that Sharon Creech wrote called Absolutely Normal Chaos. And I read that book as well, I think. So she had been working with these like kind of different perspectives and it wasn't until she found Sal that she realized that like she actually had the book in her head in this very different way. So I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of like the structure of the book. That is interesting. I'm not sure I'd want to read a book from Phoebe Winterbottom's <laughs> perspective. I mean, I think she's a really empathetic character, yeah. but she was also one of the more frustrating ones at time. Whereas I think Sal, she was quirky. She was far more empathetic herself and compassionate. I think she was, and you saw that, you know, become even more so throughout the story. Um, is like she grew in this her ability to put herself in other people's shoes, as mm-hmm. the title alludes, and. I'm not sure Phoebe was so good at that. I just feel like I maybe would have been more frustrated <laughs> if it had been from her point of view the entire time. Yeah, it, w- it was definitely frustrating to read <laughs> Phoebe, even from like an, a, an outsider's perspective. It would have mm-hmm. been interesting to be in her head. In terms of Sal meeting Phoebe, one of the things that I really liked about her as a character and something that I thought was kind of different about this book as compared to other books that I've read about kids at this age and particularly about like quote-unquote new kids at this age is that Sal had a lot of things going on when she moved to Euclid. She was certainly like not having an easy time of it, but I really liked that sort of her struggle to fit in at school and to meet new friends was not something that was dwelled upon in this book. Like she made pretty close friends pretty quickly. And Phoebe Winterbottom is definitely an interesting character. And I would imagine is a very divisive character among readers and not one that I liked all the time. But Sal made really good friends pretty quickly. She had Mary Lou, she had Ben, like there were a few references to the fact that kids at school were making comments about Sal's hair, which I thought was an interesting commentary on the way that kids aren't necessarily literate in terms of culture and like how to appropriately approach and get to know kids that are coming from different backgrounds than their own. But other than that, there's not a lot of time spent on Sal's like struggle to fit in or to find her place at the new school. It's really more like at home that she's struggling to feel comfortable because she's missing what she feels is her home. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. I mean, the whole new girl at school thing isn't really a thing in this book. She's pretty much accepted from the get-go and seems very much able to be herself while she's still maybe figuring out exactly who that is. I did feel like between her and Phoebe, she was clearly more comfortable just in who she was and not trying to change. Whereas I think Phoebe definitely was a little more high strung, (laughs) but I hadn't thought about the fact that new girl at school wasn't a huge aspect of the story. I like that. I get kind of sick of that trope, both in books and TV and movies. Like I feel like we've seen that so many times. Mm -hmm. And I think that if Sal had had one more thing on her plate that she was dealing with, like having trouble making new friends, it would have been really hard to read this story. And she had this confidence about her. um, And part of it was that Phoebe approached her first. If I'm not mistaken, Phoebe just comes up to her and is like, Sal, I think you're really brave. And that's sort of where their (laughs) friendship begins, which is such an indication of how dramatic Phoebe is. Like that that's how she (laughs) thinks you make friends, by coming up to somebody and making some like sweeping, (laughs) characterizing statement about somebody you don't even know. And I liked Sal's response to that or at least her internal monologue around it she said what I have since realized is that if people expect you to be brave sometimes you pretend that you are even when you are frightened down to your very bones but this was later during the whole thing with Phoebe's lunatic that I realized this and I think that the first part of of that 
is such a great lesson for adults too. Like if people expect you to be brave, you're going to be. Mm-hmm. You just have to rise to the occasion. Yeah, that's true. There was a lot of like fear or talking about fear in this book and just the way Phoebe dealt with it versus Sal. And I think you're right. Sal was very much just who she was. And if people saw her as brave, then that's how she felt. I liked that about her character. She was very wise beyond her years, I think, in some ways. She was. She understands people in such an interesting way. I I loved the way that she just perceived the people around her, especially Mrs. Winterbottom. And I I feel like we could talk about the Winterbottoms for probably two, three hours because they're a fascinating family. Very. And the Winterbottoms are Phoebe's family. We've already referenced Phoebe Winterbottom, Sal's best friend in her new town. And Sal goes over to her house and she's kind of like witnessing everything going around her and observing how this family works. And it's a very traditional kind of heteronormative family and I think Sal says something along the lines of like Phoebe's father acts the role of father with a capital F and her mother basically does nothing but cook and clean all day and Phoebe and her sister Prudence don't really seem to understand that that might not be something that their mother like relishes in but Mm -hmm. Sal sees it and she makes a few comments she says like I was happy for her when she announced that since Phoebe and Prudence were back in school she thought she would return to work she also says I wondered why it was so easy for me to see that Phoebe's mother was worried and miserable, but Phoebe couldn't see it, or if she could, she was ignoring it. And I think it's just such a testament to how how wise Sal is that she understands people so quickly just by watching them and seeing how they interact with each other. Yeah, and there's that whole um, part where uh, Sal is kind of like watching what's going on, and she notices that Mrs. Winterbottom seems really sad. And that, you know, Prudence has no idea or doesn't seem to. And it's um, them talking about that. I think there was a message, one of the messages they received, which we can talk about more. Yeah. Um, is about everyone having their own agenda. Mm-hmm. And Sal is like, you know, I could tell that Mrs. Winterbottom was trying to rise above some awful sadness she was feeling. And Prudence couldn't see that. Prudence had her own agenda, just as I had my own agenda the day that my mother wanted me to walk with her. So she just has this really great way of being able to put herself in other people's shoes and, you know, know or at least guess about what they're feeling in a way that her friends don't seem to, which is probably more typical for someone her age, is just to be going about their own business and your parents are your parents. And yeah. you don't think about the fact that they have their own emotions. Yeah, they just work for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're just there to feed you and clothe you. Um, and I really liked that about Sal. She was really relatable in that way. She seemed to be this, um, just like an observer, mm-hmm. which is something I think you know, I used to do as a child, I was a little more quiet. And so I would just kind of watch what was going on around me. And I'm not sure I was quite as astute as she was. Yes. Uh, But I just could relate to that aspect of her character. I think Sal's definitely the exception to the rule. Um, In real life and in this book, obviously, like none of the other characters are nearly as insightful as Sal is. But I related to her as well. I was pretty introspective. And there were parts of her relationship with her mother that I related to in certain ways. And, And so much of that, I think, is why she has the perspective that she does about Mrs. Winterbottom because she's already kind of like watched what happens with her own mother um, dealing with some really tough stuff and now she has like this wisdom about adults and about what it means to be a woman and like how different mothers interact with their children in ways that might be unexpected or like different from the norm. So I really liked her empathy for Mrs. Winterbottom and I think that her reaction to their family in general is a great way for Sharon Creech to set up like the kind of person that Sal is because her insight 
sights on them just say so much about her. I also really loved the way that the winter bottoms reflected a lesson that my mom always taught me, which was that no family is perfect. And you might see this like shiny, perfect family from the outside, but you never know what's going on in the inside. And that's something that she told me my whole life. My parents are divorced and were when I was very young. And, you know, I had a lot of angst about that at different points in my childhood and would just come home and be like, nobody gets it. Like my life is so much harder than anybody else's. And I happened to have a lot of friends whose parents were still together and it all looked like very perfect and clean and shiny from the outside. And my mom would always say like, you have no idea what's going on when you're not there. And I think the winter bottoms are such a great example of that. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that all of those families were dealing with things that I didn't understand. And so Sal kind of gets to pull the curtain back on a family like that and see what it's actually like. Yeah, they're a really, really good example of that. I mean, that's something I think I'm still learning as an adult, you know, like you, my parents divorced when I was really little. And I think there are some parts of our society and culture that that do act as if families are this picture perfect, shiny, you know, two parents, 2.5 kids. Um, And so to see a family that looked like that on the outside in this book and then, you know, get to see that not everything is as perfect as it looks just kind of reaffirms that lesson. Right, because Phoebe's family takes a turn when one day Mrs. Winterbottom is gone. And one of the details that I most loved about her disappearance (laughs) is that she's left frozen casseroles in the freezer. Um, and, and the girls, Prudence and Phoebe, sort of take this for granted. Like, they're just looking in the refrigerator because they're like, oh, mom's not here. Like, I guess we have to find something to eat. And it's like, oh, look, there's macaroni and cheese here. And they don't really think about it. They're just like, oh, we'll just pop this in the oven. Great. Thanks, mom. And I, I just, I loved that Sharon Creech did such a great job of, like, carrying Mrs. Winterbottom's character through, even when she wasn't actually there. Like, she was always there. And just showing how much she was kind of taken advantage of in a way. You know, how much both Phoebe and Prudence and Mr. Winterbottom in a way didn't really fully appreciate what she did for them until maybe until those casseroles ran out. (laughs) Yeah. And then you're like, what am I going to do? What am I going to eat? And before she disappeared, kind of the thing that catalyzes all of this is as you alluded to, there are these messages that start showing up at the front door. And the first one says, never judge a man until you've walked two moons in his moccasins, which according to Sharon Creech, she found in a fortune cookie. And that was part of the inspiration for this book. And I, th- I can't remember how many messages they received before Mrs. Winterbottom left. And it was sort of unclear to me, even having read it before, I was like, are these messages directly connected to Mrs. Winterbottom? Are they just sort of like inspiring her to like go take action on something that she wants to take action on? And I think that's one of the little mysteries of the book. It's like you're trying to figure out, okay, what's actually tied together here? Who's involved? Does Mrs. Winterbottom have anything to do with these messages? So it's hard to figure out like what prompts the other. But Phoebe, being very dramatic, decides that there has to be a connection and that there must be a lunatic who is leaving the messages and also responsible for kidnapping her mother because there is no way in hell that her mother would ever choose to leave voluntarily. Like, why would she ever do that? Yeah, those messages are really interesting and so vague. I mean, you really don't know their purpose until the very end. Yeah, I pulled out, I think I have all of them. If not all of them, I have maybe like all but one. So the second one was everyone has his own agenda, which you mentioned. Um, In the course of a lifetime, what does it matter? Which I love and it's something that Mm -hmm. I'm trying to work on as an adult. Me too. (laughs) And you can't keep the birds of sadness from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. 
I like that one too. I feel like I probably am still trying to work on that. <laughs> Maybe we need to write these down and hang them over our desks. <laughs> I think we might. <laughs> Did you have a gut reaction on where the messages were coming from, on like maybe how Mrs. Winterbottom was involved? You are such a big reader, and you know we've we've learned to pick up on like sort of different clues and hints as we've grown our reading lives. What was your instinct about all of this? I think at first I thought they were connected to the lunatic, mm-hmm. like he was leaving them. But I think at some point it becomes a little more clear that it's not him. I think I also thought they were definitely for Mrs. Winterbottom because she seemed to just have such a reaction to them as they were showing up. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think there were a lot of things to try to figure out throughout this book, which I loved. I liked how things were very slowly revealed and there were a lot of different mysteries. And so I think I was also trying not to guess too much. Like Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to let it unfold the way that, you know, Sharon Creech meant it to, but you know, it is hard not to, to make some guesses. So I think I definitely thought they were connected to Mrs. Winterbottom at first. Because the lunatic is this kid that is sort of starting to hang around as these messages are showing up. And I do think that's something that I remembered. Um, we do spoilers on this show, so I can say this, but we find out in the end that this boy that's been hanging around is actually Mrs. Winterbottom's son, who she had before she got married. He's found the family and wants to have a relationship with his mother, which is really special. It's really a neat storyline and not one that you read often. And I actually kind of remembered that. Like when he came, when he showed up, I kind of realized right away that it might be her son. And so it's interesting that I remembered that from the book and maybe almost nothing else. Um, that is interesting. Isn't it really that funny? spoke to you. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that maybe it's also just like an adult perspective. Like as a kid, I think most kids probably would not necessarily think about that because it's not something that you read about often in a kid's mm-hmm. book is like somebody's mom having had a child before they were born and not knowing about it. But as an adult, I guess it, it, it is not like as shocking to me. So maybe I just picked up on it more easily. Well, I think I kind of started to guess that a little bit toward the end about the lunatic, that maybe he was somehow, I don't know if I, it's hard, once you know how things end, you kind of forget. Yeah, it's hard. But you, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I do think I might have guessed that the lunatic was Mrs. Winterbottom's son. I think it just became clear that there was a definite connection between the two of them. I think I was just surprised by seeing that in a book for, you know, middle grade readers, because that's a, I would imagine that's a hard thing to wrap your head around as a kid that, like you said, that someone can have kids with someone else that they give up before they start their, you know, family. I just, it really struck me how much of an adult topic that was in this book, but it was handled well. It's just not something I have run into before, at least in my memory, when I was reading books as a kid. Yeah, it was absolutely a first. I think there are a lot of firsts in this mm-hmm. book that I recognize as an adult. Um, Sal makes some offhand references to like that time my mom was pregnant, and we have no evidence that now Sal has a sibling. So immediately I was like, it seems as though her mom must have miscarried or that maybe her sibling died very young, either of which is like an extremely heavy topic. Um, There's some sort of vague references to mental health, or at least they read as vague references to me when I was a kid, whereas now I read them and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, we we have such a more open dialogue about mental health today. So it's, it's much easier, I think, for me to read this book and sort of point to instances where clearly these women in particular are struggling with with depression and anxiety and just kind of feeling stuck in their lives. And those are very heavy subjects, I think, especially for a kid like Sal, who's seen her mother go through really challenging situations and has seen her mother 
manage depression and not necessarily have the resources to to feel better. Those are things that I certainly hadn't read about in other books at this time. No, me neither. And those definitely stood out for me. And I think they were a big part of why I liked it so much. Again, I like books that deal with heavier subjects in a very real way, you know, while also still dealing with them in a real way that's accessible and recognizes their heaviness, but also leaves you feeling like it's something people can handle and get through, Mm. Um, which they do kind of talk about that in this book too, you know, just that bad things happen, but you can still find joy, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that always resonates very deeply with me in stories. I think that Sal's dad is an interesting part of that story and that that plot line of like figuring out how to get through the tough times. I really liked Sal's relationship with her dad. He reminds me in some ways of my dad. My dad's sort of like a quieter guy, but like such 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 a good human like one of the best humans um he doesn't always have a ton to say but I always just know that he is like the kindest just like the best soul and I think that Sal sees her dad that way and something that I really appreciated was that like she knows that even though she doesn't always agree with the way that he's acting and she's not always thrilled with the way that he's handling the situations that they're going through but she has this maturity about her where she can still respect him and recognize that he is like this impossibly good person. Um, The tricky thing that's going on is that they've moved to Ohio so that Sal's dad can be close to this woman named Margaret Cadaver. Great name. Um, (laughs) And we're not really sure how he knows Margaret. We're not entirely sure of the nature of their relationship other than the fact that he like really seems to depend on her in some way. And Sal's not happy about it, understandably. I mean, I growing up had my mom was dating people and like that was not always a comfortable thing for me um and you're kind of like looking for reasons to be unhappy about it and looking for reasons to dislike everyone that comes through and so I related to Sal on that level in a way that I didn't when I was a kid because I hadn't had that experience when I read this the first time but reading it now um I couldn't help but laugh because I was like been there girl like it's really hard (laughs) um but I I really liked the way her dad was sort of working his way through all of this and he was stumbling along the way like he was doing the best he could to be a good dad but she catches him sometimes messing up she catches him sometimes being sad he breaks down a couple of times he's just like extremely human and I loved that he is and he was a very quiet character not just in the sense that he didn't have a lot to say but in that he definitely didn't play a leading role but he was also you kind of always knew he was there in the background and I liked the way he gave Sal freedom to figure out stuff on her own you know he was definitely a little less present than some of the other parents you know whether that means he was at home and he the book just wasn't talking about him or if he really was maybe he was at Margaret Cadaver's house the whole time but you know you still got the sense that he was there for her and that he supported her in whatever way she needed and so he really seemed to let her work through this tough situation on her own and in her own way Mm -hmm. and I thought that was really great and I think it also allowed Sal to be confident in her ability to handle this tough stuff on her own knowing that he was there to back her up if she needed yeah and, and it would be so easy I think to like demonize a character like him as a reader because 
we're hearing all these stories about how much he was in love with Sal's mom. There's all these beautiful flashbacks about the times that they spent together as a family. And we obviously are, are reading these like beautiful recollections that Sal is having about her mother specifically. And so just like the mere notion that he would have already kind of like moved on, it definitely like doesn't feel great as a reader. And it would be so easy to just be like, oh, like he's the worst. That's so annoying. How would he do that? But there's something about the way that he's written that makes it impossible. It, it's impossible to feel that way. And that I think, again, it's like a testament to Sharon Creech's writing and the way that she's characterized these people. Definitely. Yeah. And that's something she did really well throughout this book is all of the characters are real and flawed, but you still are able to empathize with each and every one of them. It doesn't feel like there's a single character in this book that is bad or that, you know, you just don't like at all. I think Sharon Creech did a really good job of making them very human. Yeah. I didn't even dislike Margaret Cadaver. I mean, I know I was kind of supposed to, (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't dislike her. And part of it was this whole like hilarious narrative that Phoebe's built because Margaret Cadaver lives next door to Phoebe. And so when Sal and Phoebe become friends, Phoebe's like, oh, like I can give you all of the gossip about Margaret Cadaver. Like, I'm pretty sure that she's a murderer and I'm pretty sure that her husband is buried in her backyard. And by the way, did you realize her last name is Cadaver? So that obviously like adds some comic relief to the whole thing. We're like, okay, Margaret Cadaver is probably not that bad. But I, I couldn't even be mad at Margaret Cadaver. I sort of wanted to be because, again, I've been in Sal's shoes. And I, like, really wanted to be on Sal's team and be like, yeah, like, there's definitely something wrong with her. But there really wasn't. And she was being such, like, a lovely support system for Sal's dad. And you can't fault her for that. Exactly. First of all, can I just say how much I love Phoebe and the way that she talks about Margaret Cadaver? It just still cracks me up. Yeah. Um, there's a lot I of things think, I love about her. Yes, me too. <laughs> She's also very relatable in a yeah. lot of ways. Uh-huh. Um, but I wonder if my child self disliked Margaret Cadaver. Like, yeah. I didn't this time around, but I could. I think that comes with some perspective of right. being an adult. And I wonder if, you know, like 10-year-old me who had been through a divorce with her parents and didn't like when they dated, yeah. could, probably did not like Margaret Cadaver for very legitimate reasons as a kid, like you said. But yeah, I think reading it as an adult, she too is just too human. And you later find out just, she's kind of great. She's kind of one of the best characters in a lot of ways. Yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, we always find ourselves jumping around in these episodes. Unfortunately, there's no way to touch on like every beautiful plot point in this book. And I wish we could, but I think this is a really important one. And I want to make sure we get to it, especially since we're already talking about Margaret Cadaver. So there are a lot of things that happen on the road trip that Sal takes with her grandparents. Um, But nearing the end, uh, she realizes that she's like very close to not having time to get to Lewiston, Idaho in time for her mother's birthday. And there's a really tragic turn of events where her grandmother has a stroke while they're traveling and so ends up needing to go to the hospital. Sal's grandfather stays with her and hands her the car keys and is basically like, if you want to go somewhere, if you need to do anything, it's fine. And there was some foreshadowing earlier in the book about the fact that like Sal knew how to drive. I think he'd taught her like on the farm or something. So that was sort of a clever little plant on the author's part of like, this is going to be important later. Like she can drive. I didn't think she would actually drive. On like a highway, on like yes. a winding highway road. It kind of blew my mind. I think I even noted in the book, like, what? She's driving? <laughs> Extremely brave. Like, we have established Sal can be really brave when she wants to be. Phoebe was right. It's true. Phoebe was right. She was on to something. Yeah. So Sal takes the keys and is like, okay, I'm going to get to Lewiston before my mom's birthday. Um, and when she gets there, she encounters a police officer who's basically like, why the fuck are you driving a car? <laughs> valid 
very, very. Like, I, I would ask the same question, like actually super grateful that there are police officers out there asking these kinds of questions. That was my reaction. I was right. like, I really hope it's addressed that this is kind of insane. Yeah. Like, could you please get off the road? And she explains the story and is like, I'm, you know, I'm here because my mom ran away to Lewiston and um, it comes out that he is aware of her mother because she was killed in a bus accident on her way to Lewiston because she's afraid of driving. Unlike Sal, she prefers not to drive. And so she, when she decided to, to go away, she bought a bus ticket. And on her way into Lewiston, the bus fell off this very curvy highway that Sal has had to manage on her own. And there was only one survivor of that accident, and it was Margaret Cadaver. And so Margaret was actually sitting next to Sal's mother, I get the chills just talking about it. I was sitting next to Sal's mother just before the accident and spent her final moments with her. And so when Sal's father went to Lewiston to presumably identify Sal's mother's body, he met Margaret Cadaver, and that's sort of like where their relationship started. What did you think about how all of that unfolded? I mean, there's so much there. There's the realization that Sal's mother is in fact dead because it's not entirely clear for the length of the book. I mean, I kind of thought she might be, but there was hope that she wasn't that she had just kind of decided that she wasn't going to come home. Um, so we find out that she's actually dead. We find out that it was this like extremely tragic sudden bus accident. And we find out this kind of cosmic connection that the family now has with Margaret Cadaver. What did you think about all of that? Honestly, the Margaret Cadaver part kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't think that ever occurred to me. And like you said, I went back and forth between thinking Sal's mother was still alive or like she was living in Lewiston for some reason. And I think the story of Phoebe's mom disappearing influenced that in a way. It made you wonder, like, is Sal's mom alive or did she pull something like Mrs. Winterbottom? So I think finding out that not only Sal's mother was dead, but the way she died was like a gut punch. I mean, there was a lot that happened, a lot that happened and a lot of like realizations and storylines connecting in those last 20 pages that I kind of just had to sit there and like try to absorb and digest it all. But the Margaret Cadaver part was, it definitely surprised me, but I also loved it. It made you realize why Sal's father was so connected to her, why that relationship was so important. And it erased any sort of frustration or childhood anger that this was his new love interest. You know, it went much deeper than that. And I think even just showed how much Sal's father loved Sal's mother to move to a town because you want to spend time with the person who spent, you know, the last few hours of their life with this person. That just says a lot. And I found that really touching. And I don't know how a child would absorb reading this or if they even understand it. I think in some ways this book is written in a way where, you know, if you're a kid reading it, you can understand like some of the surface level stuff. But as an adult, I think it even hits you harder having gone through adult things and experienced some of the loss that's talked about in this book. Mm -hmm. I just really, really loved that part of the story. Yeah, I don't know what I really thought would happen at the end. And certainly like I did not see the accident coming. I didn't see the Margaret Cadaver connection coming. I didn't really know where I thought her dad had met Margaret Cadaver. A lot is made of it. Like there are a few times throughout the book where Sal's like, they were trying to tell me how they met and I didn't want to know. So I could tell that there was some sort of interesting story around it, but I thought maybe it was something like maybe they met in grief counseling or something along those lines where it was Mm -hmm. more hinting at the fact that like Sal's mom actually died and that's how her dad came to find Margaret cadaver but I I really did not see any of of the specifics coming there's just like so many things that hit you at the end of the book 
Sal sort of comes to terms with her mom actually being dead at this moment. And then when she reunites with her grandparents, she finds out that her grandmother has also died from her stroke. And this all happens within a few pages at the end of the book. And so I think that like the whole book I had been like waiting for some sort of bomb to drop with respect to Sal's mother. And I was like very prepared for that kind of a revelation. And Mm -hmm. I was like ready to find out what that was about, even if it was really sad. But then Graham has a stroke leading up to what I know is going to be the big moment with her mother. And there's sort of a cliffhanger when Sal leaves where we're not sure if Graham's going to make it. And then when you find out that Sal's mom died, like, I was like, oh, well, then her grandmother's definitely not going to die. Like, there's no right. way. There's no yeah. way. And then a few pages later, Gramps tells her that Graham is gone, too. And so I just think that Sharon Creech does sort of, like, this very lovely but also very dark and realistic job of showing you that, like, even if you're a kid, life can come at you really hard and you don't get to like trade one tragedy for another. Right. Sometimes you get both or you get three or four tragedies and like all of these things coming at you at the same time. But I will say that because I was so ready to get like whatever the news about Sal's mother was, like I wasn't really prepared for anything else. Yeah, no, I felt the exact same way. And I think too, I mean, part of the way Sal really comes to, I don't know if accept is the right word, but realizes that her mom is not coming back is that she climbs down this like mountain to where the bus fell and still is, the bus is still there. Um, And that's when the police find her and are like, what the heck are you doing? How did you get here? Where are the adults? Yeah. Um, But that was also just really painful to know that she saw what happened to that bus. If I remember correctly, you still aren't sure if her mom survived it. Like they've mentioned that there's one survivor. And so the naive part of me, I mean, I think in my gut, I Uh knew like clearly Sal's mom did not survive. But because they mentioned this one survivor, I was like, oh, Uh, maybe she is alive. (laughs) She just had to stay in Lewiston for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, I think Um, it was the last sentence of a chapter maybe where it was like but one survived and obviously you're like okay that either it has to be Sal's mother or somebody else important because we have to know whoever this person is and of course I'm like who else would I know who's on this bus it has to be her mom um well isn't that interesting it was Margaret Cadaver but no I felt the same way where right up until that moment I I sort of held out this shred of hope that her mom was still alive because you're rooting for Sal like this book is such an amazing job of putting you in Sal's head and in Sal's heart that you really just like want everything to turn out beautifully for her especially because her life has already been turned upside down in so many ways and I think it's also worth mentioning that Sal carries a little bit of guilt about what happened to her mom and this is where the mental health piece comes in the story there is that Sal's mother was pregnant as we referenced and Sal had mixed feelings about that anyway like she wasn't quite ready to have a sibling and she was already 10 or 11 at this point and just like wasn't really sure that she wanted to have another kid in the family and she was jealous that her mom wanted another baby and and I felt that way too I remember um because I'm my mom's only child and there were moments in my like later elementary school years or you know even early middle school years where my mom would kind of talk about like oh you know like it would have been great if I'd had one more or something and I was like hey I not enough <laughs> hey over here um so I totally related to that but 
ultimately Sal does get really excited to have a sibling and she really hopes that it's a girl. I think at some point fairly into her mother's pregnancy, Sal climbs a tree and falls and her mom has to carry her home. And um, later that night, her mom goes into labor and when the baby is born, the cord is wrapped around her neck and she dies. I think she may have been stillborn actually. Um, So Sal carries all this guilt about the fact that like if she hadn't climbed the tree and fallen, then her mom would have carried her baby to term and Sal's sibling would have lived and their family would have stayed happy. But instead, Sal's mother goes through this like incredible grief process um, and becomes extremely depressed because she's lost her baby, understandably so. And so Sal, I think, really thinks that she's responsible for kicking off the whole series of events that ultimately leads her mom to go to Lewiston in the first place. Well, and she also, her mom also ends up having to have a hysterectomy, right? Due to that birth. So she can't, I think also part of her leaving is not only has she lost this child in a really traumatic way, but she can't have any more. Right. And Sal is aware of that Mm because she's the one that tells us, which also is interesting because again, I don't think that's something I've ever read about in a book for, you know, this age group. Yeah. But I like that it deals with guilt. I think that's something everyone deals with and it makes us love Sal even more because she is so, she was just being a kid, you know, and I think as an adult, you know, it wasn't her fault. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can also empathize with the way she was feeling and and feeling, I think in some ways, if she was just trying to figure out or come up with a reason or a way that her mom could come back. And maybe by blaming herself, it was more about this wasn't her mom's choice necessarily or something that she did on a whim, you know, um, but that if she could fix it her mom would come back. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's a parallel with that guilt with Graham and Gramps also, because Mm -hmm. before Graham has her stroke, Gramps had kind of encouraged the whole family to go swimming in a river because, you know, that's what cool grandparents do. Like they're like splashing, I think half naked in a river. Like I don't think, I think they may not have been wearing any clothes. I'm pretty sure not. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So Sal's like (laughs) splashing around in a river with these like nude elderly people, which is an interesting (laughs) image. And Graham gets bit by a snake. And then there's this, there's sort of this, like, presumably hot guy that comes over and, like, tries to kick them off the land, but he actually ends up, like, helping to get the venom out of Graham's snake bite. Like, it's sort of this, like, ridiculous series of events, and Graham's does sustain the snake bite. It seems like she's going to be okay because, with the help of this hottie, um, (laughs) they've gotten all the venom out of the bite, but it's a few days after that that the stroke happens, and so... Sal says, I wondered if Graham's snake bite had anything to do with her stroke, and Gramps felt guilty for whizzing off the highway and stopping at that river. And then I started thinking about my mother's stillborn baby, and maybe if I hadn't climbed that tree, and if my mother hadn't carried me, maybe the baby would have lived, and my mother would never have gone away, and everything would still be as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think her like seeing that Gramps could be going through a similar thought process as she was, it sort of made her feel like it was okay to have those feelings like when grown-ups feel the way that you do it kind of makes it okay well and there was a lot of I think Sal did a lot of that a Mm -hmm. lot of watching other people experience things and then reflecting on her own experience and that kind of allowed her to think about it differently or kind of come to terms with how things have happened but at the end of the book she's talking about three ways in which she's jealous Mm mm-hmm and the one part that really broke my heart is the fact that Phoebe's mom comes back right. and hers didn't. And that just broke my heart. But it's also so real. You know, right. I don't I'm I'm kinda glad that both moms didn't come back. That's yeah. not really the way life works. Well, I hadn't thought about this before, but now that we're talking about it, Phoebe's mom also comes back with a sibling for Phoebe. Phoebe's oh, mom gosh. comes back and is like, Here's your brother that you never knew about. He's the lunatic. He was the one who kept coming right. around. 
And I'd really like for you to get to know him. And at first, Phoebe, being Phoebe, is like dramatic and is like, no, I could never. (laughs) But I'm sure that she's going to come around because Mrs. Winterbottom is like a great mom and I'm sure we'll unite the forces on all this. But um, she's come back and has a sibling for Phoebe. And Phoebe already had a sister. And Mm -hmm. so now she even has like a bigger family. And not only did Sal's mom not come back, but... Sal lost her baby sister and like any prospects of ever having another sibling and so it like kind of that makes it even worse oh I just made it worse I hadn't even thought about that but you're right that just makes it even more sad but I mean I will say it's a happy ending her life still ended up beautiful yeah it's a the, the ending is happy for a lot of reasons Gramps gets a beagle so that's great for Gramps. I loved that. Yeah, I loved the beagle. <laughs> I love beagles. I would have one if they didn't howl. Um, and Although, Irv, Irv, I still love you. Don't worry. I wanted you first. <laughs> beagles would have been my second choice. So everybody's kind of like getting back on track. And I think one of the happiest parts is that Sal finally gets to the point where she can very simply state, like, I miss my mom. Right. Like that, I think that's a standalone paragraph in the last chapter where she just says, I miss my mother. And the fact that she can just say that instead of making all these vague statements about like, maybe she's coming back, like all these statements that led us to be unsure about whether or not her mom was even alive. She's kind of been able to move past that point and she can just kind of like say how she feels. And that in itself, I think is a win um, and is a nice way to wrap up the story. When I think they kept referring to like trying to catch fish in the air or something like that, Mm -hmm. which was basically, you know, trying to find reasons for what's happened. And I think, you know, she mentions at the end when she says, I miss my mom, she was like, you know, I've stopped fishing in the air, or maybe I do that sometimes for other reasons, but just basically saying that she's, she realizes her mom's not coming back. And it's sad, but it's okay. Yeah. And I think that's an important lesson. I agree. There are so many other things that we could have talked about that we didn't. We didn't get to talk about Mrs. Partridge. We didn't get to talk about who actually left the notes. We didn't get to talk about the teacher. They're like, so we didn't get to talk about Ben and sort of like the love story that's going on. I loved that. Loved that. Loved all of the failed kissing attempts. It was sort of like a sweet, (laughs) like undertone with all these other heavy things going on. There's just so much in this book. And I think we covered some of like the really heavy points. It's absolutely worth coming back to reading if it's been a while for you. I promise you it's not going to feel like you're reading a kid's book I would recommend anybody pick this up I know you said that you didn't quite remember a lot about the book but that you are pretty confident that you loved it and I do always ask this question at the end of our episodes do you think that coming back to Walk Two Moons as an adult made you love it all the more or has it not held up for you in some way I mean to the extent that you can remember that first reading experience of course I would say I loved it even more yeah I think there's just so much here that you can appreciate in a different way as an adult. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I definitely loved it more. Yeah, I think for me especially just being more aware of the moms and sort mm-hmm. of like what this book has to say about <clears throat> motherhood and being a woman and like what it's like as as a woman to like figure out your relationship to your family and to your children and to like your loved ones. I think that this book has so much to say about that in a way that I never would have understood as a kid. So I appreciated that. And obviously like having a better understanding of the heavier themes, as sad as it was, it gave me a different level of appreciation for what Sharon Creech has done with this novel. Before I let you go, I would love if you could share any books that you've read lately or that you're reading now that you're loving that you would want to recommend to our listeners. Sure. I always love doing that. I I recently finished Maybe You Should Talk to Someone Mm. by Lori Gottlieb, which, considering mental health, has been part of our discussion of this book. Um, It's about, it's written by a therapist, and she shares four stories of her patients as well as her own experience in therapy. Mm. And 
you know, as someone who is in therapy myself, but who's also just very aware of mental health, I found it fascinating. And I think anyone could enjoy it because ultimately it's just stories of people and it's very compelling. It's not, you know, some dry nonfiction book. And I just, it made me want to think about therapy in a different way and use the therapy that I'm in better. So I highly recommend that. And then I'm in the middle of City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. I can't wait to read that. I love her. (laughs) She's the best. So I'll read anything she writes. But I actually haven't read any fiction of hers. And this is just super fun. Like, she talks about wanting it to go down like a champagne cocktail, light and fizzy. And that is exactly what it is. And I'm loving it. I listened to her interview on Dax Shepard's podcast last week, (laughs) um, which I loved. And I think I've recommended it to a few people on Instagram. But if you haven't listened to that interview, I'll link it in the show notes. Because I love her, too. And just listening to her talk about anything is an experience. But hearing her talk about this book, especially, it made me so excited to read it. So that's at the top of my list. Um, and yeah. include- she wanted to write about promiscuous women, which I mean, if that doesn't get you to want to read it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the story about like where, she, you know, what inspired her to write it. She, yeah. she tells the whole thing on the podcast, but basically this woman that she came to realize was like the love of her life a little bit too late in the game. She, she passed away from cancer and Elizabeth Gilbert was like, I just want to write something fun, like to celebrate yeah. women. Like I had this very like sort of heavy, meaningful relationship with this person who I've now lost and I just want to like celebrate the ladies and and that's what she did so I can't wait to read that book I'm going to include links to both of the books you mentioned in the show notes for this episode along with a link to Walk Two Moons because I don't think either of us can say enough good things about it is sort of what I'm going to take away from our conversation <laughs> yep and I would absolutely recommend anybody listening to go pick up a copy whether you've read it or not um, it's absolutely worth a read or a reread agreed Thank you so much for your time, Catherine. I'm thrilled that we got to actually like look at each other's faces and have a real conversation, especially about a great book. And I'm so happy that you were on the show, especially for our like quote-unquote season finale. That feels really special, and I just appreciate you taking the time. I know you're always doing a lot of reading and also just living your life and doing other things. So thank you for taking the time to add this other book to your list. Of course. Thank you. It has been so much fun, and I'm really glad it motivated me to reread this book because it was absolutely wonderful. Well, it seems like it was meant to be because you had bought it, and so it all worked out perfectly. And congrats on the end of your first season. That's huge. Thank you so much. I can't believe it's been a year. I was thinking, like, this is the 52nd one of these recordings that I've done, which is, like, wild to think about. That is wild. That is a lot. So pat yourself on the back. You've done a great job. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being on, and I really appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.